Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're coming to you from the autom- Autonomous Vehicles Department today. <laughs> why, do you, why do you say that? Well, because Better Know Framework is all about autonomous driving. Oh my goodness, okay. Don't you want to know now? I do want to know, but I wanted, I'm also very excited about that I'm up at the coast. Yeah, that's right. And I actually have a three-channel recording rig working. So I'm using a NUC for one Skype channel, the laptop for another Skype channel, got the H6. And you're doing this on just home Wi-Fi? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't really buy home Wi-Fi. <laughs> 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 I'm not that guy. So I okay. kind of bought the highest end, you know, service available in this part of the world. But I get to watch the tidal flows right now. And it, I'm reminded, you know, I was recently at Norwegian Developers Conference and the wife came along. So we actually took a day and we did a fjord tour in Bergen and so forth. And nice. I was, now that I own a house on the water, I was looking at these houses on the water. They were too close to water. I'm like, how do they do that? And then I looked it up and it's like, that part of Norway only gets a three foot tide. I have a 16-foot tide. Wow. So, you know, problems. Yeah. Anyway, the yeah. upside is I can see a lot of seaweed from where I'm sitting right now. But you were talking about autonomous cars. Yeah, let's do that. Let's roll the music. All right, dude, what do you got? This is a GitHub project that's very popular right now. It's called Apollo Auto. Oh, my goodness. It's an open, autonomous driving platform. Wow. Yeah. High-performance, flexible architecture, which accelerates the development, testing, and deployment of autonomous vehicles. Because everybody should be rolling your own autonomous vehicle. Yeah. I mean, what, what this is wrong? a time vampire waiting to suck the life out of you. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's a good description of it. You know, I mean, we like abstractions, of course, as developers, but, you know, what could be more abstract than a product that barely works that you want to move forward with a bunch of like-minded people just to be able to get in on that architecture and the action of something like this, should it ever, you know, work its way to mainstream. A cynical person would look at this and call it a Dunning-Kruger emphasizer. So you think you can do autonomous cars because you think they're easy. Well, here's an open source library for it. Yeah. Have at it. What could go wrong? But, I mean, the partners are a serious list of companies, They are. Man. That's true. Yeah. Bosch and Delphi and Daimler. Like, holy man. There's, there's a lot of important people. Right. It's not a basement project started by a couple of dudes. These are many, many car companies and many, many serious producers of electronics, you know, LIDAR manufacturers and the like. So, yep. yeah, you, you can't argue with the roster. True. And, you, of course, and us as software people, we're firmly convinced that autonomous driving is all about the software. So <laughs> Right, you know, of course. Why would you think any other way? Cool. Yep, very cool. Love it. Enjoy that one. Sorry for your lost time and hours, yep. but uh, there you go. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grab a comment off of show 1356, the one we did with one Dustin Metzgar, talking about supporting aging software. You know, Dustin's day job. Hmm. I, I, that was a really fun conversation. About, it was. You know, the yeah. framework, you know, the, the, and sort of the reality of when we talk about the personality of Microsoft, that you know, no developer kind of left behind, right? That if you've committed to these bits, Microsoft's committed to those bits too, and they take care of them. I was really impressed in that interview that Dustin really, really likes taking care of uh, brownfield projects, whereas a lot of developers want to do the new and shiny. Yeah, it's true. 
And admittedly, that show is from October 2016. So this is a comment from two years ago by the Hex Wrench, which okay. is, you know, what wrenches aren't Hex, but okay. Uh, and he says, regarding your mid-show joke, this wasn't funny. <laughs> tell me something i don't know he did attach a winky face emoji to it the old school one because this is why it isn't funny for him okay our cto now remember this is two years ago this is 2016 our cto still uses an access 2003 app oh. for managing database content. Oh. And when he wants to update a database with the latest content from the MDB, he uses macros. Oh, But it, I'm pretty sure you did a whole Halloween comedy bit about this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if someone has opened the MDB too, it isn't possible to run his macros. So then he goes all around the office finding out who locked it. Wow. Unbelievable. 2003 called and wants its database back. Yeah. It happens regularly and it would be funny. If it wasn't so sad. Oh, man. We haven't been able to convince them to use another tool. Even newer versions of Access are not okay. And as long as Windows supports Access 2003, and since it's still running on Windows 10, we have to stick to it. And since we're all kind of convinced that Windows 10 is the last version of Windows, that means that app's going to run forever, man. <laughs> Game over, man. <laughs> Game over, man. <laughs> There's nothing funny about this. This is pain. This is a big pile of pain. Oh, it's a little bit funny. Uh, okay, a little bit. I did the finger gesture. Uh, Hex. Yeah. Yeah, we feel it, buddy. We know exactly where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to send you a copy of music to code by, and uh, at least you can drown out the tears. How's that? So, <laughs> put on the headphones, get it out of there. Music to code by goes really nice with a little scotch. Just saying. Yeah, and some sorrow. <laughs> a few tears, and your scotch will open it up for the bouquet of sadness. <laughs> So thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We stuff them in an MDB file. <laughs> Put them on With a, a file, file server lock. somewhere. A file lock. <laughs> you know, I'm the kind of guy that would literally write a, a small piece of propagating malware inside of the network that just repeatedly <laughs> locked that file from different locations. That's, well, you didn't need to. All you had to do was use the product. I remember having to call, what was it? There was two calls you had to do on the file before you could even open it. One was like, a, you know, uh, it's basically saying unscrew everything that's screwed up. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so There's sort of repair. Re repair. It, right. Because as soon yes. as you open it, you write this little tag into it. It tells anything else that tries to open it. It's already open because it's not actually semaphore. Goodness no. knows. No. But I just think it would be fun to, to have nobody having it open and it's still randomly opened by something <laughs> somewhere. Just to convince people to move off it. Yeah. What if it just stopped working? What if you spent days trying to find some who'd locked it and just couldn't find them? Because it's every machine running a tiny little script of code. Oh, you're evil. Just locking and unlocking and locking and unlocking. <laughs> That's all. That's all I'm saying. Well, anyway, 
Well, let's bring Dustin back here. Dustin Metzgar has been developing software professionally since 2003. His industry experience includes building software in areas like enterprise resource planning, supply chain management, insurance, and loan origination. He joined the .NET team at Microsoft around the time of .NET 4.0, the, the release of 4.0, and later worked on Azure services. Currently, Dustin and his team own a few libraries in the .NET framework and .NET Core, an Azure service, and some parts of Visual Studio. Welcome back, Dustin. Well, hey, Richard and Carl. It's great to be here. It's Glad to, to have you, back. man. And I think we've been planning on you doing this show for a while now. Well, I think, uh, you know, we originally planned it because we wanted to do when the book was finished, but the book took a lot longer than I thought it would take. So. AKA, <laughs> it's a real book, right? Yeah. All books. And, and, you know, one of the reasons I'm up the coast right now is this is my next couple of weeks of really starting to write chapters on the history of .NET. So, I am, I feel your pain, man. I'm just sort of looking at the mountain I'm about to climb and going, oh, man. Yeah. Are you self-publishing or are you? I haven't decided. And I, and I don't need <laughs> to decide, right? Like at this point, I'm going to be, I, I kind of am, am open to any possibility. I want to get a few chapters, get a feel for how quick I write mm -hmm. these days. And, uh, and so sort of test some, some styles because it is a history book rather than, a, than a, you know, straight technical book, which I, I kind of, I know how to write technical books. I've done that. But a history book's a little different. And so I'm, I'm actually going to take a stab at a couple of the chapters in two or three different styles and see how I, how I feel about them, you know, share them around a bit. But leading into, I think, a Kickstarter to see if I can, uh, how, how people think about this and, and pre-sell some stuff, and then look at how to publish. Oh, very cool. I'm, I'm interested in it. Your book, uh, .NET Core in Action, was uh, published through who? Uh, Manning. So I'm lucky enough to be published Manning. with the, the same publisher that does um, the C-sharp and depth. Yep, yep. So, so um, why did it take so long? You know, relatively speaking. <laughs> well, part of it is kind of it's uh, it's a moving target. When I originally started writing the book, it was still yeah before .NET Core one was was released, and they had uh, Project JSON in it, and I had a whole chapter on Project JSON that I had to throw out, and then you know. Mm. There's large parts of that in the, right. in the book where I'm using that all over the place mm. and I have to replace all that stuff. Oh, I hate that. I'm, one of the times I did a tech book, it was like for SQL 7. And just before, of course, you're working on the beta of SQL. And just before release, they did they redid all the graphics, all of the iconography, everything in the UI and stuff. Oh, God. <laughs> And so I had to re and so it's like I didn't have to rewrite any copy, but I had to literally redo every screenshot in the flipping book. So, uh, do you want to talk about the topics in the book? The 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 table of contents really came out of mostly things that like uh, you know when I started out working as a uh, as a developer that I wish I knew at that time because it's funny it's it's like you're going along and uh, all of a sudden this right. this new area of something mm. just opens up and you know you have to pretend like oh yeah you already knew that because everybody else knows it so. <laughs> none <laughs> yeah. of which is actually true but things like um signing the binaries or putting a, a localization in or um how to debug or how to do performance profiling things like that um it's just stuff i wish i knew like way earlier on but, uh, so there, so it's not necessarily for people who are new to core. Then is it's sort of like using core to right. learn .NET, or is it a little of both? 
Yeah, it's uh, like the target I really had was that that kind of you know developer that's starting out and was going to start out with .NET Core because I I really think it's a great platform to start on. You know, there's still enough in there that convert to .NET Core. I'm not trying to exclude those people. Yeah. How do you talk in terms of why you would use .NET Core over the standard framework? I wasn't allowed to bring it up in the book, but, um, you know, uh, Scott Hunter had talked about .NET Framework 4.8 as basically being the last release. It is kind of done. Um, (laughs) They keep waffling on this. Like, you know, it's almost like there's a threat of a .NET 5 on the horizon. But I think the latest move with Core 3, where they're starting to bring over the desktop components, speaks more to what if everything you do in standard framework works in Core? Right. Yeah, as especially from WPF and that sense, it's it's interesting what they brought over and what they didn't. Right. But they've also now set this paradigm of we don't have to make everything cross-platform. We could do a set of Windows SDKs. Yeah, and just including you know including a NuGet package or something that says uh, you know I'm on Windows, I want to use WPFs, and but still run on .NET Core. So. Right. I, I think it's a, it's, it's an interesting plan. I, I really like the way they've done it. But there's so much all this kind of like obsolete stuff that. They can't get rid of, um, you know, link to SQL and you know right. the the old remoting system and all that stuff. It's it's all it's all still in there, and it all still has to be supported because you know they can't take it out. But yeah, down the core, it's kind of like they can start again. Well, and it, and it doesn't sound like they're ever going to stop supporting it. Like it's it's they, they no point. Mm. You figure the VB six runtime is still in Win ten yeah. and apparently Access two thousand three, so. It uh, they're not going to stop support on it, but I guess can't, I got to imagine at some point you just there's not they're not going to do more development on it. System web by all accounts is simply not coming across. Right, right, mm. and uh, you know all the innovation is going into .NET Core. Right. The other thing too is that you can use whatever platform, whatever OS, whatever tools you want to use uh, for .NET Core. And with the book, I try to stay away from um, aligning with a particular IDE or anything like that. Just kind of you know, everything can be done with Notepad or VI or whatever right. in a command line. Oh, that's nice. There's some parts where it gets a little like performance profiling. There's really not that much cross-plat, but uh, there's some things that you can do Linux and Mac to to, to do profiling and, and debugging and things like that. So. It certainly works. In, it works in Studio as well. So if you're already living in Studio, this is not a big deal. It's just this idea that I mean, there's lots of people are happy out there with VS Code. Oh yeah, and uh, and I definitely used it for not only uh, writing the samples for the book, but also for for writing the book itself. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Just it's really flexible. I don't know how how you're writing your book. Uh, for me, I I used uh, ASCII doc. Oh yeah, I am learning Scrivener, <laughs> as, as encouraged by uh, by Rob Connery. That's the tool he used for his. Uh, a Curious Moon book, the Postgres educational book that's actually got mm. a lot to do with Encetilis. So having been one of the reviewers on his manuscript and arguing mightily with him about it, I might add, <laughs> to the point where he said, am I going to jeopardize our friendship if we continue on this? Which I appreciated, like, we really argued mightily on it. But I also, you know, if that's a tool that he likes, I really had to take a look at it. It's pretty cool, but it's, you know, again, it's not for tech books so much as it is for for other kinds of books so mm-hmm. it's a good tool for that yeah. but yeah via you know if you've got to manage code inside uh a document of any kind vs code's awesome for that yeah absolutely there's other tools for it like uh 
I picked up this ASCII doc FX, which is like a whole IDE and it's written in Java and it's, they try to do everything in it. Um, but I ended up just using it to create PDFs. Interesting. I will include a link to the ASCII doc book editor. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool actually. Cause it's, it's very much like Markdown. So you're, you're just writing the text and you're, you're not too much caring about the formatting and things like that. And the, the publisher can come in and they can, they can mess with it. So Manning likes it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, it's weird cause it's not consistent. Sometimes they want me to give them a, you know, a word file and sometimes they want me to give them a PDF and then other times they're, they're perfectly fine with the ASCII docs. And- Interesting. Right. Hey guys, hold that thought for just one minute while we pause for this very important message. Hi, this is Richard. The Dev Intersection Fall Show this year will be December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel. The lineup is awesome. Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, Scott Hunter, yes, all the Scots. But also a ton of great industry speakers for some insight on what's coming up in the world of .NET. You know, Core 3 is bringing client technology like WinForms and WPF into play. Could it be time to migrate your existing desktop apps to this new technology? Come learn more at Dev Intersection, December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com to register and use the code Rocks to get a discount. And we're back. Dustin Metzger is here. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. .NET Rocks is what you're listening to. And uh, we're talking about uh, the challenges writing a book about .NET Core when it's such a moving target. And uh, uh, maybe we should dive into some .NET Core topics. And it's also uh, Mac and Linux if you're if you're running LLDB or um, well, basically you run LLDB and then you can load SOS pretty much in the same way and run the same kind of commands. Sure, yeah. You have a, a debugger that's using that's basically made for for native applications, and there's a the whole set of uh, commands and everything that are built in the debugger for for going after you know native uh, you know the compiled code, but SOS actually is is made to for the, the the managed part for .NET. It actually makes things very uh, easy to get at memory and see the the, the types and uh, what's in the heap and that kind of thing. It's a, it's it's got a lot of uh, pretty powerful commands to see what's going on with with .NET. And basically everything works just the same with .NET Core as it did with .NET Framework. So if you're if you're used to SOS, it's uh, um, you know, everything's working. It's it's pretty cool. It's it's almost like you know nothing changed. <laughs> so maybe we should just tell everybody what the SOS debugging extension is and why you need it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, I guess, to put into a beginner's book because when I first start out, I show like, oh, this is how you debug in, um, you know, in VS Code and uh, VS for for Mac and and uh, and you know traditional Visual Studio. But then I also talk about like how you do you know, command line debugging. Um, and I think it's, uh, for me personally, it's like, uh, I didn't know that it was possible to do command line debugging until like, you know, well into my, <laughs> my professional career. Um, cause you always had the IDE you were always using that way. And it's like, a, you know, nobody ever introduced me to like an actual command line debugger that I could run on a production system. Um, which is, you know, really useful if you get into this, you know, into a situation where, you know, production's down and you can't really, you know, reproduce it in a, in a test environment or on your dev machine. Yeah. Have you heard the story of where the name comes from? 
like SOS actually stands for Son of Strike. Huh. So I've heard the name. <laughs> but this is again, you know, only because I'm working on the history of .NET do I have this kind of stupid trivia in my head. <laughs> so the code name for the CLR was Lightning. Mm. Right? Right. And so when they were building it and they got sort of the in- initial iterations to sort of bootstrap the thing, they actually called the the startup the strike DLL, right? They named the file strike. Mm. Huh. As, as a, sort of the bootstrapper for the CLRs, just right at the very beginning, right? And all the kinds of silly things they're doing. They're sort of figuring out what they were supposed to do and, and stuff like that. And so they didn't want to actually hand out the, the strike DLL to anybody because it was just a bit too powerful the way it poked into windows and it sort of controlled things. And when it failed, it, it was kind of catastrophic to them. It's like, you're back to the whole, if you make a mistake, you basically blue screen the computer. Mm, right. And so they had to make a lightweight one for debugging, which they called the son of strike. Mm. And then it happened to work out as SOS, which is how <laughs> cool was that? That version doesn't actually come along until ever, until 1.1. I think that's when I started with .NET was around the 1.1 days. So. <laughs> 1.1, 2003. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, you know, <laughs> code names create silliness. And the, and the funny part, of course, is like I just added the link to the show notes for the SOS debugging from Microsoft Docs. And it's like, dude, you made that decision in 2002. And here we are in 2018 still using that name. They, these mm-hmm. names never die. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. Yeah, and we continue to carry it into .NET Core. So. But it is an interesting thought, the whole command line level debugging and what that looks like, how, how you actually understand mm-hmm. the kind of errors you're getting, what's going on there. There's a chapter on doing performance. And so I, did, I had two things. So one of the other things about this kind of moving target is that uh, um, when I originally started the book, it was I was using xunit.performance. Because um, I thought that was going to be the thing, right? But now it's now it's benchmark.net, which is you know actually way better. But I still cover I still cover xunit.performance in in the book, but because um, it's it introduces some other things too. But it, and it also covers this, the scenario I wanted to talk about. But um, it's a uh, you know it, it gets you started on you know here's how you would write a a performance test, which is really all I wanted to cover. And then, um, right. then I do profiling with, with Perfu. And Perfu being an, a, a Windows-only tool, but you can actually run the collector on a Linux or a Mac machine and then uh, export the, the, the file over to a Windows machine and open it in Perfu and actually go through the, the stacks and everything. So it's, um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's totally possible to... To, to use Perfu for, for cross-platform stuff, but you still have to have a Windows box somewhere. So. Right. So you use the Windows box to host your performance measurements, but you can code to anything you want. Yeah, and it's uh, I think we we basically kind of have to use that, that style. You know, I need a profile, so we'll, we'll capture one on a Linux machine and then copy it over and then take a look at it to see what's going on. Right. Um, and it's helpful for things like if you've got everything in a Docker container or something like that. So. Did you do a lot of uh, coding against Linux with uh, C Sharp just to, to have the experience or stuff you actually need? Um, I did enough to, to, to try it out, you know, because um, for the most part, things mostly worked right. um, on every platform. Uh, for uh, system.transactions, uh, we had some things that didn't work on Linux the same way they worked on Windows, and then you know you had to try to debug and figure out what was going on on the on the Linux side to 
um, see what was different. Um, right. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, everything was, you know, worked pretty pretty much the same. So you didn't have to do a whole lot on on the Linux side. Um, yeah, they, they always the question when you're talking about a cross-platform tool is you're busy building in one environment and then you get to a place where you're like, okay, this needs to be running over here now and then something is different. Like, it, it can be a real battle. Uh, and when you collect a profile of Perfu, you can see when it does GCs and like when there are exceptions thrown, you know, you never would have seen them otherwise. Right. Yeah, the, the Perfu is cool in the sense that you, you see sort of the underpinnings of what's actually going on in .NET that doesn't normally surface to the user even or even to the dev like it's just you know we there's a lot of chatter you you're wondering that, that you're wondering what that pause was there's a bunch of stuff going on and certainly garbage collection and you know i i've done so much web perf work over the years and it's like garbage collection can be a big deal you know that what ultimately will kill iis in high mm. load situations is sort <laughs> of a, a a spiral of of memory consumption and problems with large object releases and and repeated gcs <laughs> that block threads and yeah i'm getting chills man it's like this that <laughs> the number of times i've worked through the death spiral of iis under load hey richard yeah buddy Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to run garbage collection and all the debris left over from jokes that were not funny. Uh, Stuff like <laughs> banana peels, exploding shoes, and bicycle horns. There are some lob jobsex there. Yeah, well, that's what happens. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon card to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Compliments of Progress Telerik. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first package set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of the company's Telerik ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. <laughs> By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. For more about this really innovative library, visit Telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Marcin Dazkowski. Oh, congratulations, Marcin. Golf clap for Marcin. Golf clap for you. Who just won a $200 Amazon gift card from Progress Telerik, our good friends over there, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Dustin, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Probably one of those VR headsets, things like that. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, I think you can still buy a HoloLens for 3000 bucks. although they had a major firmware update this particular week, <laughs> and uh, and I haven't got my HoloLens to work right since, so... <laughs> we're so due for new hardware in that space like that's yeah it's time man so uh, it's not working the pinch zoom the click oh and i just have trouble logging in like and you, and you know how much of a pain in the butt it is if you've got if the logging credentials aren't working correctly in hololens you yeah. literally have to hard reset the machine right and so I'm like, uh, and it was one of those, it was one of those moments where it's like, I know what this hill <laughs> is and I haven't got the time to climb it. So I just took the headset off, put it down. It's like, right. I'll deal with you later. Yeah. <laughs> but I was excited to see the, a big update. Like it's been a while that, that Holland's gotten a major patch. Like it speaks mm. to there's some activity going on because it's been up awfully quiet lately. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, some interesting Stuff going on with it, I'm not allowed to talk about, but um, <laughs> yeah, probably not. But we're perfectly willing to let you dash your career on the rocks on the show, Dustin. So if that's what you feel like doing, knock yourself out, buddy. Like, it's, it's okay. Well, you know, I'm done with the book now and I have plenty of time to game, but that would give me more time. So that's um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of time to game. And, I, and on the VR side, I just – do you see a lot – I don't see a lot of action these days. I mean, for five grand, because most of the – whether it's an Oculus or, or, you know, any of those other headsets, they all are computer dependent. So, you got to build a torquey machine mm. and you really need like a 1080 class NVIDIA uh, video card, which is going to be your most expensive part because – the flipping yeah, Bitcoin miners yeah. are buying them all. Well, I think it's it's interesting because for mm. a while there, I thought PC gaming was kind of dying out because, you know, you had consoles that could do everything. And, yeah. But, you know, with VR, it brings it back a little bit. Right. And they, and Microsoft just recently announced that the new, the latest Xbox, they're not going to do mm. a VR headset mm. for the Xbox. We thought VR would come to, to console and it, it doesn't seem to be happening. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I wonder if that's more of a statement of, will VR just not actually taking off so why spend the money and narrow the, the market even further you know mm -hmm. see connect <laughs> yeah um versus uh <laughs> not that i'm cynical or anything oh wait <laughs> actually you are well you know and i've got friends in the industry like i have buddies that are working on trying to build the definitive vr game the game is like you have to play you know in the end what sold xbox halo right right yeah. So you need that marquee title that's like this is only where you want to experience mm -hmm. as a VR in no other way. And there just there just isn't one yet. And it was one of the interesting insights that Dave, my buddy, said the thing you need to understand about like a first person shooter is in order to keep the game interesting at that three foot experience, you're actually running at about thirty miles an hour. And when you put that on your face, <laughs> it makes you nauseous. And and it's like it's freaky. So you the pace of the game all changes, and that bugs people. Like it's it's not you can't just convert an existing game into VR. It doesn't work. It has to be different. And and I think they're mm -hmm. all groping around right now, trying to figure out well what what makes a phenomenal VR game beyond just scaring the snot out of you. Well, I saw one that um, that I particularly like. Uh, it's called Abduction with an O. Abduction. It's made by the same publisher that does mist oh yeah oh wow so it's like it's a mist kind of game done with a unreal engine i think it's unreal but uh, it's it's beautiful actually so it's <laughs> and it, the the pace and then you know you don't you don't have to worry about running from one place to another right. or anything like that or shooting at anything i want to get back to your book here for a minute and um talk about if you had to pick one little nugget that is like gold from your book 
that uh, maybe mm. you know it in your heart and other people have told you, what might that be? Or or do you have to buy it to find that out? <laughs> um, <laughs> my, probably my favorite chapter is on localization, um, which is kind of weird because it was never really a, a favorite subject of mine until I started writing a chapter. Um, but yeah. it's, um, it's interesting because with, uh, with .NET Framework, when you added some localization, you were basically creating this uh, um, resources file, which, which is usually a ResX file, and it's, uh, it's an XML file underneath. And then you have this right. editor, and you can put you know, strings in there and uh, uh, icons, images, things like that. Um, but with .NET Core and um, uh, particularly .NET Standard, you're, you're kind of just uh, only doing strings, and I don't know if you've ever seen the contents of a of a ResX file, um, but it's only when yeah, necessary. It's, it's nasty. Which I can't remember the last time. <laughs> it's it's yeah. an XML file that's got like a DTD at the top of it. Um, that's and that's yeah. the best part. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's strange. It's like uh, you know, for if you're gonna do um, you know, like text editor, command line development. Um, the ResX file just doesn't make sense to me. But uh, so, in the book, I talk about how to use something called a Res Text file. There's, uh, which is just literally you put the key and then equals and then you put the value and that's it. And that's you know one string at a time. And you can you can put comments in it and things like that. But um, I show how to use that kind of stuff. So. Have Have we gotten any automated tools? Uh, you know, since all these great translators, Google Translate and all that, have come out that just handle it you know i mean at least get you a, a framework that you can of, of resources you can edit i had some had some help uh with uh some of the translations so um somebody had uh do arabic because um and it's actually in the book which is which is kind of a little side story on that um i'm glad we caught it in the proofreading part because when they put the arabic text in there it just showed up as little squares um <laughs> it's like you know Red flags going up. This has to be fixed, like right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh man! But basically, I included Arabic because it's right to left, and then the yeah. My, my friend was basically telling me that um, if you do right. something like you write um, uh, Turkey in uh, hmm. and have Google Translate or Bing Translator or whatever do the translation from that to Arabic, it will. Uh, it will give you, you know, Turkey, the animal. Right. As opposed to Turkey, the country. Right. But if you write hot Turkey, it will give you the country. So, <laughs> oh, no. so I talk a little bit about in the book is like, you know, you can do a Google Translate or a Bing Translate, but you have to be careful because, you know, you don't know what's coming out the other side and it could be wrong or it could be even offensive. Yeah, I, I think it'd be a good idea just to have a framework in place. But ultimately, if you're going to publish text in another language, you really need to have somebody read it, you know, edit it, edited it. <laughs> yeah, you, you, humans are required. Humans are required. Still, it would be nice to just push a button and say, these are the languages I want, you know, mm -hmm. so that the heavy lifting is done for you anyway. Yeah, and uh, um, and in other parts of that too, the the localization. There's um, uh, like traditionally in .NET Framework, there was the resource manager, and uh, that's still available in .NET Core. Although mm -hmm. it doesn't 
work quite as well as it, it sh- as it should. Actually, the, the resource manager can't find your satellite assemblies unless you've built a self-contained app. If you just use .NET Run, it won't find your um, your resources, which is which was fun to debug um, at the time. So hmm. when you do like a .NET pack from the CLI, it doesn't include the resource assemblies. And then I have I basically go through the steps of like how would you build a package like a NuGet package that has the satellite assemblies in it. Hmm. But yeah, I, I think that whole area of like how to do localization was was pretty interesting. So do you think they got it better in .NET Core overall? Because they, they you know the opportunity to reboot this basically meant they. They did it from the beginning? So one thing they did um, was they added a, uh, this Microsoft Extensions localization library, which is used in mm-hmm. ASP.NET Core. And, you, you know, I show how you, how you can use it in, the, in just regular .NET Core, just from a, from a console app. Um, oh, nice. And uh, what's nice about it is, like, you can say uh, you have this thing called a string localizer. And the key is basically the the English or the, the, the default translation. So right. you don't have to have a separate ResX file or ResTech with the, the keys in it. You can just have in the code, you can just put it straight in there, which I think is nice because you can, you can search for, like if you get an error message, you can search for that error message and actually find it where it is in the code. Absolutely. And it's, you know, we've done a couple of shows on, on, in, I guess the current term now is internationalization, mm, right? Yes. Although, you know, this you makes, globalization, well, they still use the term globalization and localization, like, but the overall <laughs> seems to be now it's internationalization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it's just, it's not that simple. And, and I think the tooling hasn't been all that good for quite a while, mm-hmm. but it seems to be better now. And, and certainly more people are concerned about it. Yeah. I think it, it is, it is getting better. Um, one of the drawbacks I see, though, if if you do this um, uh, that localization extension and you you put all the strings in like a string localizer and you use that that like maybe the English translation as the key, um, if you never create that ResX file, um, then when you actually do want to create a ResX file in another language, you have to scan through your code and find all those keys. Um, right. Which you know you know, but now it's like you have to go through and. Um, look through all your code and find out where you use that string localizer and find all those keys and then write them down and give them to somebody else and, uh, to do the translation. So. Retrofit's always the hard part. Yeah, yeah. Better to sort of think in those terms right away. But, you know, I talk about a, a way to, you know, some strategies to get around that in the book. Like you can make a, like a dummy language, you know, because there's no like limit on what uh, region or culture you're using. You can actually just create your own like on the fly. <laughs> right right yeah yeah are you still digging uh digging into existing projects um am i killing anything or <laughs> no you still like it uh, are you still enamored no, I, I really do like keeping <laughs> keeping things running it's uh it's kind of um it's interesting to read somebody else's code and then try to decipher it and simplify it and write tests against it mm-hmm. and then refactor it. I don't know. Uh, for a lot of the projects that I own, um, they're not being moved to .NET Core. So 4.8 is going to be the, the last one. So I'm, at least I'm not the one, you know, killing these things. Right. <laughs> 
I mean, they're not really dying, but it's, you know, they're still supported. And I, yeah, you know, right. I'll still be working on a group <laughs> to support it. But <laughs> They're coughing and wheezing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah, I, don't, I, I just don't know how that all is going to, there's so much code in standard framework out there in the world. You know, Hunter in, in Build was talking about working with a company yeah. that literally had thousands of internal applications. You know, Microsoft never leaves that behind. So, you know, what what does it look like to do anything about that? Because you got to think most of that code may not even be compilable anymore. It's they've got a running executable, and they're never going to touch it again. Right. Yeah, and it's it's what makes it so hard to work in the .NET framework. Is like if you change anything, uh, you can break somebody. Sure. And that's that's costly. Mm. Uh, it just takes a lot of time to go and patch it. And you know, we have things like like app settings, uh, you can go into the config file and you can turn things off or, you know, use it to, you know, make it behave right. like an older version of .NET Framework. And, right. Um, but that's, I mean, that's some research to figure out, like, it, you know, this thing that breaks every now in production, is there an app setting for it that I can set it back to the way it was? And so. Mm. Yeah, ways to work around all of that. In your book, you do talk specifically about building microservices. Can we talk a little bit about that? What's you know, how do you define that? Um, so I borrowed the uh, the definition of a microservice from uh, from another uh, Manning book. Basically, just something that that owns its own data, right? And is you know has a has a well defined interface, and it, it can be completely replaced underneath that interface. And um, I think ASP.NET Core. Uh, you know, is it, fantastic for creating that kind of stuff because you can you can build that, put it into a Docker container, and then it's like that microservice is just you know that container. And for the book, I talked about how to mark down into HTML, mm-hmm. and I'm using a, some extension, the same one that they use for for the the new MSDN, the the new Microsoft Docs. They have this library that that converts Markdown to HTML. Cool. I use that, but I also put the the Markdown into Azure Storage, like Azure Blob Storage, and I show how to do that with, like, without the SDK, just like literally sending the the, the HTTP request to, to Azure Blob Storage. Cool. And yeah, just a and just a great project, right? Like that's that's a common thing to do, and I, I appreciate the thinking for until this announcement around Core Three. This seemed to me like a lot of what people were really going to use Core for was building right. services and stuff. Now, I mean, I appreciate you got the book out now before Core 3 shows up and you have to add all those <laughs> chapters on WPF and WinForms. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's uh, – well, actually, this is kind of like – there's four books from Manning that I think are all kind of related. So, mine is kind of like the the base level, like get you started on .NET Core. And I tried not to, to step too much on, on everybody else's toes. That's cool. But uh, – because I, I introduce ASP.NET Core and how to build like a microservice, but I don't really go in depth into ASP.NET Core. And I also talk about how to use Entity Framework Core, but it's it's I do compare and contrast against mm. uh, a library called Dapper, which um, they use for Stack Overflow, um, and they ported that to .NET Standard. And um, I actually use that in in our Azure services. Right, it's a wonderful library. Uh, yeah, it looks like you have the 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 in action books and the in depth books. Right? Like the, the C sharp in depth is Skeet's book, mm. which goodness knows that's the right title for Skeet. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
but the inaction seemed to be sort of the more practical, like, here are the things you need to do to get going. It, and that's, uh, I like the style of the inaction because it's like, um, it's like for people in a hurry, you know, you're right. Uh, which is usually like when you're a professional programmer, it's that's, that's usually the way it is. It's uh, right. You need to learn how to use this thing so we can work on it. And, you know, this kind of like, uh, I think you can kind of read from beginning to end and follow through and, uh, you know, actually learn a whole bunch of different, you know, get started in a whole bunch of little uh, uh, subjects around .NET Core. And then if you want to go in depth, sure. you can go and, and learn some, you know, pick up another book and get started there. And I, I, Do you have a sense of what is the, the biggest challenge for people who are just starting on .NET with .NET Core? Well, I think as far as the the biggest challenge is, is just understanding all the, all the terminology. Um, and I get into some of that, like, um, for instance, like the, 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 the words framework and runtime and platform are used almost interchangeably. Yeah. And <laughs> right. it's kind of frustrating when you get to that. It's cause there's like framework has a very specific meaning and runtime does also have a specific meaning, but then platform is like this generic vague term that means almost anything. Um. <laughs> right. And, you know, if you don't have a sense of the history of how these things came about, that can be really confusing. You know, why don't you just do it this way? Yeah, yeah. So you have, you know, words and things that are sort of a lot of cruft built up over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's... Um, uh, some of that stuff is, you know, can also be, it can also work the other way. Like if you were a .NET framework developer and you're used, to, you're used to things being a certain way, and then all of a sudden you go to .NET Core and something's just off. My typical example of that is, is reflection. Like they moved some of the, the types around for reflection, but uh, once you get used to it, it's not, it's not too bad. Yeah, reflection's had a tough history, you know, because it, it had... It's certainly slow, but it had good parts and bad parts to it. And and uh, it's been, well, Reflection just didn't work in core for quite a while. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, they've made a lot of improvements. It's one of those technologies where you may or may not sort of grapple with why why would I do this? What, what does this do for me? Another thing too is uh, for, for .NET Framework developers, if you're moving to core, you might not understand all the, the difference between the core and .NET Core and .NET Standard. Like there's there's a there's a design for .NET standard that I'm you know I'm hoping that we move towards where it's uh, uh, you know you target you try to target the lowest version of .NET standard you can you can run your code on so that it's open to more platforms. But when you really look at it, like the platforms that right. currently support .NET standard is you know why not just target 2.0 all the time? Yeah. But I'm hoping like eventually we can get. Like, because you can you can run .NET Core two on a Raspberry Pi, but um, say like like a NetDuino, it still runs .NET Microframework, and Microframework doesn't support .NET Standard yet. And so, um, but I'm hoping we actually get to that point where we can have like an embedded or a microcontroller that's running something, some version of the .NET Standard. Yeah, I just don't know if it's going to be Microframework or if this, they're going to get there a different way. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like the .NET Microframework has been left behind. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, good or bad. It's uh, you know, I I would like to have something that you know kind of made that the argument more solid about like why you should target lowered versions of the .NET standard. Um, yeah, 
Well, I've always had a sense that uh, nothing lower than 2.0, right? Like the, that the earlier versions were really sort of incomplete. And that the 2.0 is where they got to a point where they were kind of happy with the feature set. And now it's, you know, getting more platforms to this. Yeah. And um, so like, and a lot of libraries that they do, so say like uh, Dapper, they do, um, I think it's 1.3 and 2.0. So you can, you can multi-target and then have different feature sets for the different, um, uh, for the different, uh, different frameworks, which is really nice actually. Cause uh, you know, you can you know ex- expand to other things that were only available in in net standard 2.0 um, but you know the, and the the idea is that like the 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 lower version of net standard should be more universally uh, firstly uh, applicable but moore's law still applies like the the always the argument is these really small lightweight low cost devices but the power of those things is going up so quickly now that like 2.0 should be enough for them too. Yeah, especially, I mean, you've got the Raspberry Pi running .NET Core 2. Yeah, and I think that's more of a statement of how much power is in a Raspberry Pi now than, they, mm-hmm. than necessarily they got the framework that small. You know, there's, there's just a lot of clout running around in, in very small system-on-a-chip configurations. So, Dustin, what's next? What's in your inbox? Well, in, internally at work, we're taking a uh, this kind of old monolithic N-tier um, architecture and we're, we're turning it into microservices. Is it Windows? Yeah, well. <laughs> 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 when you say we have a monolithic code base, I mean, you're talking about working at Microsoft. <laughs> You've got a few monolithic code bases out there, my Good friend. Guess. I'm just Good guessing. Guess. <laughs> I'm going to leave it generic because that, that pretty much describes almost everything here, but um... <laughs> 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 so that's that part's been interesting and then, you know, I'm kind of taking a break from the whole book writing thing because that was that was very stressful. So, yeah, I still got uh, you know panels on my home, and um, so there's, they're still doing the incentive. Oh yeah, for Washington State. So, but once that runs out, then it's you know I'm kind of thinking about those those Tesla batteries because uh, oh Powerwall. Yeah. Yeah, I think right. that'll really improve the you know because if you're not being paid by the power grid anymore, then it's, you might as well just store that energy for yourself. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, and see if I can get the neighbor to knock down that big tree that's in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's an interesting yeah, right. problem. But yeah, absolutely. Well, Dustin, thanks for talking to us, and congratulations on your book. And uh, we're looking forward to reading it. Yeah, it was really a pleasure to talk to you guys again. Thank you. Always. And we'll talk to you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.
Transmit a band by the MCC. Yes, I'm a, a dog.